On Tuesday, December 6th, 2011, SDC's Gretchen Michaelfeld spoke with sound designers Jill B.C. DeBoff, Brett Jarvis, and Rob Kaplowitz to find out how to work with designers to maximize the creativity and productivity of sound design. Hello, I'm director choreographer Christopher Gatelli, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. So I guess the first thing I want to I want to ask you guys, you know, just you know, sound design for dummies, you know, aside from the obvious, what can a sound design add to a production that that other design elements can't? What what is the, you know, obviously sound, right? But what what is what can you uh, uh, do for a show that other designers can't do? I think that's a, a big question, like a bigger question um, of musicals versus straight plays also. What do you guys think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the big thing I've always said is, like, sound is the only medium in the theater by which you can actually physically touch somebody. And... Um, and really hook into their sort of primordial uh, responses. You know, I call it the lizard brain. You know, and, and using sound in a way to, to, you know, and sometimes in a manipulative way to, to get people uh, to respond to something in a certain way. So I've always that, thought that was sort of interesting. You literally can touch an audience member... With a sound wave. With a sound wave. Consciously and, and unconsciously, sort of. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you can... You know, either subtly or by shaking the theater. You know, whatever, whatever, whatever that device is, whatever you're trying to, you know, accomplish. So I always thought that was, you know, that's that's always. And, been and what do you mean by lizard brain? Well, you know, it's the you know a, a spinoff of the whole you know primordial fight or flight instinctual uh, feeling. You know that you know that that sort of tingling you feel when you hear distant thunder, for instance, and and. Uh, uh, you know those sort of deep-seated, instinctual responses to sounds, and you know, of course, it's all rooted in music, and 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 you know, and it's been said that music is the most powerful of the arts, and I think that's one of the reasons because, you know, you you can, uh, you know, it's sort of a visceral. You know, these visceral elements. I was listening to it. It's an NPR show. So yes, uh, listening to it yesterday. You know, They're talking about a music orgasm, and they were saying basically that you know when you experience music in a certain way, that you know the body's response is actually uh, very similar to sex. And and uh, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if I would have <laughs> said that myself, but. Um, <laughs> That's sort of my take on it. Though. Interesting. Well, we'll all go home and listen to music. <laughs> uh, I think I think there's also um, sound has a has a way of uh, of giving you both arc and individual moments that many other design elements don't. I mean, often you're getting a lot of big picture stuff in in scenery, um, and lighting does does some artwork, but it's really uh, whether you're interested in, in sort of the, the traditional sort of theme and variations way of approaching it, or, or even in the much more abstract way, you can really, um, you can have a baseline that's going all the way through the play while you're creating sort of a, a, a sonic arc. So you've got this world of the play and the way that the world is growing and changing. And it can really flex with the, 
with the performers and with the with the shape of the text because I, I feel like uh, I mean I feel like all design, correct me if you guys disagree but I feel like all design fields really are like directing and, and, and acting and that they're just um, sound design is, is my way of taking the, the core text and transmitting it some element or some aspect of it to the to the audience and and I just have a, a, a particular medium that, that that we're using we have this particular medium but in the end it's it's the same job it's just finding an interesting way to shed light on aspects of the text that aren't necessarily being done by the rest of the, the design team uh, sort of like highlighting without really sort of overshadowing I guess sure absolutely I mean and, and you know, I'm not a. I personally, and, and again, this is all about personal aesthetics as well, right? But I personally am not a huge fan of of, of doing emotional work with the sound design. Although sometimes it's a, a very valuable thing to do, but usually that's coming from the actors, right? That the actors provide, or the or the dancers provide most of that information, the emotional information to you. So then I I stop and ask myself, well, what else? What's not What's not here in the scenery? What's not here in the lights? What's not here in the in the costumes or the acting or the movement, what can I do? And that's just, you know, again, we because we're doing so many different things, we're, we're providing naturalism, you know, of course, whether heightened or not, we're providing the rain and the thunder and we're providing the phone rings and the dog barks, but we're, you know, and we're, we're providing rhythms for people to move to, but we also, it's this question of, like, what other, what's that other that we can send out? And one of the nice things is that we get the shape. It can grow over the course of the two hours or 90 minutes, I guess, these days. <laughs> <laughs> can I just go back to, to your, what you said, whether you're doing traditional themes and variations, what, can you, I mean, again, sound design for dummies, what is, what is that, what does that mean? Oh, oh, just if you go to any sort of classical music, you know, when you have an A, B, A, C structure, or when you identify a theme, it's very cinematic, of course, to identify a theme with a character, right, or an event, and that theme comes back and varies. I, I don't think you see a lot of that in modern theater. I, I think people feel feel like they're beyond it. But you do see, you still see it, of course, in musical theater a lot. So, right. so speaking of musical theater, you, you, you started off by saying it depends on whether you're doing a musical or a straight play. Right, yeah, I feel like for a straight play you can um, kind of create the arc and you can do a lot of underscore and you can really kind of help the emotion of the audience along, either um, obviously or subtly. And, um, and there is, there's a lot of creativity in straight play sound design, you can either, you know, like you said, just do traditional sound design like dog barks and phone rings, or you can do a lot of underscoring and you can do a lot of offstage and you can set a scene and you can set a tone. You can really create an entire world, whereas in musical theater, a lot of what you're doing is, uh, it's also extremely creative, but it's a lot more of just... Um, uh, system design and, and miking people and just making sure that all of that really comes through and sounds good and adds to the piece. And um, I do a lot less musicals than I know you guys do. Um, and Rob did Fela, which sounded great, and also had the band on stage. So that was its own kind of challenge. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that? Oh, well, I, yeah, I mean, it is, and it is, it's all of those things. But I, I, I think underneath you still have that. Um, the great thing is that you still have have that same question that you're going to ask as a designer. You know, you have all of these requirements in, in a musical that are very specific. You've got the, the musical arc, as Jill says, coming from the, the composer, and your, your job is to feed that arc. 
there's also the question that you ask yourself of how, again, what part of this story can I, or world, can I help transmit? So in the, uh, in, in Fairwell, just because you mentioned it, one of the things that, that we were looking for was a way to, to expand the play beyond the proscenium. And so we explored all sorts of, I explored all sorts of ways of using surround and musical that you wouldn't normally use, including literally putting the vocals all around us and moving the vocals through the room in different ways so that I could say, ah, oh, this is, we want, Bill wants the audience to feel like they are immersed in this shrine experience. And, and we don't want to do that by just having people wandering around the back of the house talking which is really what happens at the shrine. Um, we, we wanted to do it by pushing that so, so, that, so that it is. It is that, you know, I think it's the same. It is a different tool set sometimes, but it's that same question that you ask yourself. What can I, as an artist, bring to this conversation to help make that conversation that much more interesting or exciting or dynamic or engaging? Along those lines, I also designed this show once that um, it was called The Five Fingers of Funk. It was a... Um, Will Power show, and it was at the Minneapolis Children's Theater, and they are a theater that's really well-funded, I think, and the play took place in the 70s, so we used 70s amps, so we were actually able to get the 70s sound, which was really cool. You know, ordinarily we would do something, we would process sound to sound that way, but we were able to get the real thing, and it sounded great. It was a small house, so it was a lot less to fill, but... Yeah, it does, and it makes it so much more fun to work on also. Yeah, it's funny to me. I mean, I think there's still, uh, I would say it's a misconception among people that, you know, doing sound design for musicals is, is, you know, somehow less artistic than doing sound design for a straight play. And, you know, I I, I strongly disagree with that. And, uh, you know, my reasoning is no one would ever suppose that that mixing a, a record album for a, for a band wasn't an art and wasn't creative and doesn't and it didn't have a sound. You know, the the tough thing about musicals is it's it takes a lot more effort to get to that meat and work with it and knead that dough because you're spending so much of your time just making it work. You know, there's never enough time. You know, we all know that there's never enough time, and you're you know, ha- <laughs> more than half the job is you know, being a politician and, and calming nerves and things of that nature. So, you know, a lot of times it kind of gets left to last minute and, you know, late previews to where you finally, you know, the cast and, and the band, you know, finally settles down and gets in their groove and you can actually start thinking about some of those sorts of things. You know, that's the fun thing about straight play. I've been doing a lot of straight plays lately. I'm in straight play mode right now. And uh, it is nice, you know to just think about the sound that's coming out of, you know, these devices that don't have personalities, you know. So, uh, you know. When you guys, um, when you guys do straight plays, do, do, do you compose original music? I, I do, I don't, uh, but only when needed. Is that something you just... You, I mean, is something you prefer to do, prefer not to do? How, how is uh, that? I kind of, um, the, the way I started composing for plays was that I hit a moment in a play and I couldn't find the right thing for it, but I could hear the right thing for it, so I wrote it down. Um, and that, I mean, that's like 20 years ago, but uh, li- little by little, I, I just sort of 
gain the confidence in that to say, yeah, no, I'm not full of crap. I actually do know what this should sound like, and I can, you know, and I can write it down and give it to someone to play. Um, uh, but but I really still see it as if if it's uh, on two levels. On one level, quite frankly, it's a time. It takes much more time to write the music. And uh, and so that just means, do I have the the time? Um, and of course, a producer doesn't want to pay you anymore for being a music and sound designer. They want to pay you for being sound designer. So there's like the the uh, mercenary side of it, which is. But then on the other side is what is the best? What is the thing that will serve the play best? And if the thing that will serve the play best is for me to write some music, then I'll write music. And we also, I mean, I think all of us do stuff that. Some people would call music and some people would not. I mean, I think a lot of oh, the yeah. soundscaping that, that all the sound designers I know do crosses strange lines into what is what is music and what is sound and what is noise and what is... And I don't worry as much about what the definition would be. I just want to make it and make it serve the, the play. Yeah, you know, I do write music and I did more back in the days when I did more dance. I actually wrote a couple of full-length pieces for Cedar Lake Dance in the in their earlier uh, the earlier years of, of that company. But, you know, my feeling on that for plays and, you know, I feel like a lot of times when I go to a play and there's a sound designer slash composer that the music doesn't exactly wow me. And, I, you know, I think it, it's one of those things... That's, you got to get the right person for the job, and you know I find that a lot of pe- these people that compose in in, in a breadth of of genres um, are wholly mediocre in all those. You know, I think you got to get the right person in there to do the job. I'm working on a play right now, and uh, uh, blood knot. Uh, blood knots over at the signature and uh, Athol asked me today if I compose and I said yes but not this you have to, I think you have to know when to say no um, that you're not the right guy for the job I'm not you know going to write uh, South African homemade guitar music like it's just not going to happen I can try it but you know you're not you're not doing the play any service by trying to assert your you know uh, your artistic bent on something like that just for the sake of doing it so that's that's my take on that you know yeah that's a really good point too do you do you i compose a, a very little bit um but i work with composers a lot also my mentor was a composer so i know how to speak to composers and i work with composers often it's funny. I'm I'm, I'm going to be next door to Brett. I'm doing the, the show. The other one of the other because they're doing three openings at the same time. Oh, really? Are you? Yeah, that's so funny. In the, uh, her village, oh, yeah. and it's got a, a huge southern, um, huge southern rap element to it. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I you know I grew up in in New England and I went to the York in Philly. I mean, I, I you know, and I know I know I have a pretty deep knowledge of rap and, and hip hop, but you know, I uh, I said to Patricia McGregor and to the signature, I said, can we get someone in here? We've got this 13-year-old girl rapping on stage, and we need it to be crunk, and we need it to be, like, Memphis home style. I can make it, but let's get someone who can make it better, or at least who can teach Because if you can imagine me trying to teach crunk to a 13-year-old actress, <laughs> maybe she'll be 15. I mean, that's, like, totally... So, so I, think, I think a big part of it is knowing... 
knowing where you stop. Like knowing, it's the same in anything. I mean, it's, I'm sure directors and choreographers are the same. Like, no, really, should, should I be, you know, choreographing a traditional African dance? Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't, you know. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, you're saying so many, I think you're saying so many things that, as a director, I would find helpful to hear. Um, what is most helpful to you to hear from a director? What, what, are, what are the things, like when you're starting out, out production meetings or meetings, you know, what are the kinds of things that directors say to you about the soundscape or about their, their sort of vision of the, of the story? That are that are helpful and what and what maybe aren't aren't so helpful or aren't the best ways to start. I find if they say anything, it's great because <laughs> a lot of times they don't and they can't. I, you know, I've, I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing. More often than not, when you meet a director for the first time, they'll say, "I have no idea how to com- communicate about sound." I can talk to lighting designers, I can talk to set designers, but you know. I find very, very often that they just say, I, I don't know how to tell you what I want, so you, you, we're going to have to figure out a way to make this happen. And how do you what, how do you help them tell you what they want? Well, I mean, I think a lot of us, I think we all try to talk in visual terms as much as possible. I think people tend to have, um, you know, tend to gravitate towards that. And the other thing I do is, I ju- you know, when I, when I do a show, especially a big, heavy sound effects show, I just assemble what I call my palette of sounds and I'll just literally sit in the room and play stuff. Not for anything specific necessarily, but do you think this speaks to the play? No. Do you think this speaks to the play? Yes. And you go and you sort of pare it down um, and and hopefully intertech with a palette that works for the show. And I did did my first show besides the ride with Danny Goldstein was this little off Broadway show last year called Baby Universe, and, they, and they'd done things that never really used sound in a big way. And but you know the, the idea was the whole thing was scored with sound, and there's because of the nature of the arc of the piece. There's just no way to do it in the rehearsal room. Like we literally had to build it during tech as we tech the show. And, um, you know, it's a big leap of faith for, for Gwen, the writer, and, and, you know, and Danny. But, you know, once we got into our groove and learned to communicate with each other, you know, it makes, makes life, and you communicate through all these little elements. I, I think that's the easiest way to do it, personally. I find it's also really helpful um, to speak to playwrights and find out, like, what they were thinking if the playwright is still alive. Um, and then with directors to say, like, um, are you looking for something that's sort of like upbeat? Are you looking t- for something that's transit? Like, just find out exactly where you're thinking of using sound. And then I also will do something usually like I'll bring in, like, say, four sounds, and there'll be, like, three totally different ones and, like, two of one that I think will work really well. And then see what the director responds to. And if the director responds to, um, you know, part of one or part of the other or none at all, to then, you know, bring in other ideas and hopefully, you know, hit on something and hit on a theme. And usually, collectively, you can figure out what does work. Um, but I have worked with directors before who, you know, I'll play them something and they'll be like, no. Like, well, why not? It's just that's not what I was thinking, which is not helpful at all, you know. So you can say, like, well, do you like, like, the first part of it? You know, and usually, like, they do like the first part or, like, just one element or like you know do you like that there's a drum in there or do you like that it ends on you know with a bell or do you like that it you know is 22 seconds long you know like do you like anything <laughs> of it you know it's funny I I, I, um, I I tend to 
uh, encourage directors to talk to me about the whys and, and worry less about the, the content. So that it, just the way that they would talk to a visual designer, I feel like a lot of times directors feel obligated to, to provide you, the, and this is why they freeze up, they feel obligated to speak in sound language and they feel like I'm not qualified to speak in sound language, I don't live in sound language, I don't know how to talk to you that way. And so what I try and do is, is pull them back from that, especially in early meetings and especially with first collaboration. Yeah. You know, to, to say, let's not worry about what it's going to be. Let's worry about what you're thinking about for this moment, how the moment feels, what's happening on stage, what you're trying to convey. Yeah. Why is this actor doing this? I mean, I just quite literally uh, I was just sitting in first rehearsal with, um, with Annie Kaufman this morning uh, on um, any, uh, an, uh, a play called Body Awareness. And uh, and, I, and and the other Annie, the playwright, had written that this one scene takes place in a very odd place. There's these lectures that happen in front of the chalkboard. And then the last scene that's happening in the house, she's put in front of the chalkboard. Now, one would say that has nothing to do with sound design. But for me, my question was, why do we think this scene is in front of the chalkboard? Why do we think this very intimate home scene is happening in front of the chalkboard? And that conversation led me to a, uh, a whole understanding about what that part of the play is about. And when I have that knowledge, and what that, the way that we're treating the, our production is treating that part of the play, and then when I have that knowledge, I can go home and then I can apply my expertise and say, aha, here, here are some things that feel like this. Here are some things that do, you know, that have this, whether it's this tension or this confusion or this conflict or this, you know, so that, so that, that, I like to, um, I love to encourage directors just to use it to speak about the bigger picture. Uh, I, I, I think, I have no problems hearing specifics. I mean, I love it when, when uh, I'm perfectly happy when, when a director throws out names of songs or bands or any of that. You know, it, it doesn't, it's no encroachment on me as an artist. If, if it's right for the play, then it's a shortcut to the solution. And if it's not, if it doesn't feel right for the play, then it's at least a launching pad for something that might might be. But I don't feel like directors should be obligated in any way, as neither of you, I, neither of you do, but I, I feel like really and truly trying to step it back and keeping, designers are just dramaturgs. All we are is, is dramaturgs with a skill, with a specific skill set. I, uh, I talked to a, a costume designer recently who said, we were teaching together, and she said, the only thing we can do is teach them how to be the play. We can't teach them how to be a designer, we just how to be the play. And I feel like that's the, that's the same conversation. I agree that talking about the bigger picture is definitely extremely helpful. I was working with this director once, and we had a meeting, and um, you know, and I went through the play, and I was like, what do you think of you know, these ideas? What do you think? And she was like, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I was like, okay, so what about like these ideas? You know, and, then, so, and we had about four meetings, and then at one point I looked at her script, and she had actually in her script decided where, where she wanted all the sound to go and exactly what sound she wanted. Oh, and in theory, like I was guessing, she was, was she like hoping trying? that, yeah, she was trying to like get me I to like... come to the same conclusion. Yeah, and it was a Shakespeare play. Like it was a pretty big play. And so I was like, well, do you, do you want me to like tell me what's on your script? She's like, no, I was once yelled at by a sound designer because I told them exactly what I wanted. And I was like, no, this is great. Like you can tell me like you want thunder there and I'll bring you, you know, like different kinds of, you know, like, but if you know what you want, like that's really helpful. <laughs> Technician, like, um, well, when people narrow it down to the song, they they don't budge. 
Well, in this case, it was like it was a lot of sort of like it was sound effects, and she had this very magical idea for um, for say like the Forest of Arden or something, you know. And she was like, I want then like a train to go through, and you know, so she tried to get me to sort of get to the same conclusion she did that like we're going to you know like have this like crazy like 1920s train you know and so it was just like her ideas and so she she did have like the general ideas of what she wanted but she didn't know exactly what she wanted them to sound like so that was where my um that was where I guess I don't feel like a technician that was where my artistry came in was what kind of sounds were there and then also from there I used that as a jumping point to more ideas like more underscore more sounds and I was like I see what world you're going for now I understand your concept for the play so you know but like sometimes when directors give you um, when they give you just like a list of like I need three door knocks and a doorbell you know like then you are like Really? So you could have, could have gotten like a student, you know? You could have gotten anybody to do the show. I also think I think it's it's you know it's lovely to be concerned about the designer's feelings that way. But I also think that we don't we we are all at least speaking for myself. But I think I know these two pretty well too. We all are pretty confident in our egos. We're not <laughs> we're not fragile. And so um, maybe if you're in that situation with a very young designer, you want to be very careful to sort of bring them along. But I would much rather have someone say, look, this is what I'm thinking. And then if I disagree with it, we can have a nice discussion. And if I agree with it, I can say, hey, great. Look, that's, that saved me that much work. You know, it's, it's not... If you're thinking, if you're hearing the show that specifically, then why make an exercise out of it? You know, if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if your vision yeah. is that specific, as Jill is saying, just... Bring me what you're thinking, and then and then we can talk about it and launch, and then I can find okay. So you brought me 15 ideas. I can take those 15 ideas and make them 30, or I can say, hmm, in this scene you're really exploring, you know, steampunk, and in this scene you're really exploring hip hop, and in this scene you're really exploring sort of baroque music. Can we talk about why? <laughs> you know, and again, it's the why. And maybe there's a great why, and then maybe I'm going to add 15 other genres, or maybe I'm going to help the director say, ah, you're, you're responding to the essence of this, and the essence of this, and the essence of this. So. What, what do you think the biggest misconception is about sound design that directors and choreographers bring with them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe what do you it guys sounds think like about you were kind of going toward that uh, you can't talk about it or something. But, I mean, in terms of who you are and what you do, how do you feel misperceived? I've actually met directors and other people along the way, maybe, maybe younger ones or less experienced ones that are actually really surprised that I can carry on a conversation because they assume that sound people all they think about is are knobs and buttons and lights and things that's that's hard to break sometimes you know i think because people just assume that you're off in your own little world that and you know you enjoy it that they don't understand it you know that you take some satisfaction that they have no idea what you're doing and <laughs> I, I think um it, it's a big thing, yeah. It's, yeah, it's no, very it's, common. It's this idea that you are an ephemeral... And, and I get it in both directions sometimes. It does get it in this, like, you're this sort of sort of heightened artist. You know, you know when it's a composer, then you're this, like, weird artist who doesn't really speak speak their language. Or, yeah, and yeah. if it's technical, then it's, you're this technical person who doesn't really speak their language. But, I mean, I, I get hired 
Usually I get hired because someone's looking for an opinionated sound designer. <laughs> People really, I mean, and I, I do, I mean, this is an, a misconception that I think a lot of our generation of sound designers has helped overcome. We're, we, are, we are opinionated collaborators in the, in the conversation. And I think that there, there was a generation of sound designers that were so busy just trying to make sure that it worked that they didn't get a chance to think about the, 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 the play at large. And, and certainly that's the case in in a, a generation above us in terms of musical design, but even in, in play design. It, is this because the technology was so young and it was evolving? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, my first off-Broadway shows were reel-to-reel. You know, when I, when I wanted to have seven options, I had seven options on the reel, and if I had to change one, then I went home that night and I went back to the studio and I re rebuilt seven more options. You know, it was, the, you know, and now I can sit, we all do this all the time now. I sit in the room and the director says to me, I love that thing that you're doing with the refrigerator, but can you make it more harmonic? And I can go, yeah, and I can take my keyboard and I can sample the refrigerator and I can give it a three-tone sound and I can play it back. And, 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 and in, 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 as fast as a lighting designer can rethink something, I can rethink it. So I think that that is, that may be a generational thing, and I think... It's, it really. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't interrupt you. It really is funny how it, how it's changed. I actually went from reel to reel to using digital audio workstations in college. When I first moved to New York, everyone was still doing pretty much everything on mini disc, and I was dragging around at the time two full size desktop towers <laughs> that I'd mounted in cases. And the, the machines were so slow that you you'd actually let one work on a cue. And sit there and, and process it while you were doing whatever with the other computer, because it, it might take an hour for it to chug away and finish. And of course, video is n in that place right now. You know, they, those guys have to wait forever for for. It's getting better, you know. But so that was the thing. But it was, you know, it was it was for a lot of the people I worked at. You know, this was in like '97. You know, to, to actually be able to edit in the theater was unheard of. You know yeah. that you could actually fix something right there. They were, they made their heads spin. Uh, my first off hit off Broadway show was called The Donkey Show, and it ran over at uh, a club that is now not there on on the West Side. And I was working with Diane Paulus and Randy Weiner, and they they were doing this weird little disco rendition of Midsummer Night's Dream down at the Pyramid Club on Avenue A and I went in and met them and we sat down with all this disco music and I introduced them that was the first time they'd seen digital editing and we cut that music apart and put it back together and they're still, they're still playing that up in Boston that mix it was a lot of fun you know and for me it was brand new too because you know Back in the day, when you're on an open reel tape deck, you, you'd cut the tape with your razor blade, and depending on what the tape speed was, that was still an eighth of a second or whatever. So you couldn't make it. You, you know, you really couldn't make a seam a seamless edit in music. At least I couldn't. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and all, now all of a sudden, you know, you can zoom in to like one forty four thousandth of a second, and make that cut and join a whole different part of the song right up to it, and it's totally seamless. No one, well, of course, now everyone does that at home, but at the time it was, uh, yeah, it was no, revolutionary. I remember, I remember the transition that I was doing a show, at, uh, I was doing a show one summer, and I, I brought my computer out with me, and, and the director was completely ecstatic, and literally within nine months I got to the, you know, and I, and I had literally, again, I was like carrying a, and so then, like, nine months later, I'm doing a show, and I, I just didn't have the means to carry my computer in a giant suitcase where I was going. And, and a director came to me and said, 
Where's your computer? Why don't you have a computer to edit that right here? And I was like, No, my God, that wants to go as a superhero. <laughs> and now, yeah. And now the funny thing is, like, literally, they'll be like, Can you completely redo this five-minute sequence that we just did? Let us know when you're done. Yeah. <laughs> it literally has gotten yeah, to that. Yeah. Where if you know, no one wants to wait on anything. They'll wait on the lighting people longer than they'll wait. They'll wait. They'll wait for us to finish something. Now I think, but it's funny, yeah. you know. And it knows what. Not even 15 yeah. years ago? Well, and generationally, there are sound designers who still never want to hear holding for sound. There are sound designers. I, I've worked with not much older than me who, who literally are like, never, never, never hold for sound. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You hold! You <laughs> <laughs> hold for sound. Yeah, yeah it's, it's funny. We're going to open it up in a, in a minute, but I just wanted to ask one more question just about the directors you've worked with who've inspired you. you know, can you tell us about some of the directors, choreographers you've worked with who've really inspired you to do your best work? Uh, you can start. Oh, um, I, I haven't worked with enough choreographers. If there are any choreographers here, um, uh, but, but uh, early on, uh, you know, one of, my, one of my earliest big influences was, um, was Liz Diamond, who said the most important thing in the world to me, which is, don't butter the butter. And she just, she was like, if there's already butter on the bread, don't put more on top. We got that. Find something else. But uh, you know, I'm constantly inspired by directors. I, I, I'm, I'm always finding directors who who want to try some new idea or explore something new. And I, I've been doing a lot of Defy's work now. I moved down to Philadelphia partially because it's sort of the, the home in America of Defy's work. I'm working with directors who really are like, let's take an idea, let's take an actor, and let's take a, a piece of text, and let's just play and I'll just make music, and they'll make words, and we'll just, you know, and we'll make sounds, and, the, you know, and the set design will come running on the hallway staircase, and someone will be jumping. I mean, it's like, that stuff is, is very, very inspirational to me, so. Uh, I had some directors inspire me not to want to work with me again, too. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, there, there are many. Um, early on, actually, Mark Dindy, the choreographer, um, uh, back when he was, actually, I think he's doing a lot more contemporary stuff now. But I, one of my first shows in New York was uh, at the Joyce, and it was called Dream Analysis, and uh, extremely sound-heavy show. And he, I just, I still always think back to that piece and, and just how daring he is. Um, um, and you know, and even though I haven't known Danny long, I, I really think Danny Goldstein is just an amazing guy and is is not scared to take risks and uh, uh, is not, doesn't really have any, I feel like he doesn't have any really preconceived notions of what theater should be, you know, and I I think that's exciting to me because I, I, I think, I mean, personally, I think things in the theater world right now are a little bit stagnant and, and, um, you know, I'm, Interested. I, I want to meet more people like that that are willing to to totally forget everything we know and try something different. And uh, you know this this sort of trend in 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 bringing brands to Broadway is uh, troubling to me. And I you know um, I hope that that pendulum swings the other way. And I think people like him, like Danny are are uh, could be instrumental in doing that. Uh, I think for me, uh, early on also, I feel like 
those who inspire us early on really kind of make us who we are. And for me, I worked with this guy, um, Jeremy Dobrish, who's a wonderful director, and he was with the Adobe Theatre Company. And that was kind of at the beginning of my career, and it, he really pushed me to think outside of the box. And I appreciate that in directors still, like Tina Landau or um, Lisa Peterson, actually, people who really do inspire that. But I also, I like directors, like I've just recently worked with Joe Mantello, who has a very clear vision of what he wants. You know, and you work with him and you play things and you play things, and then when you hit something, it's sort of like it all makes sense. And it's like, ah, right, this fit into the whole piece, you know? And it's just when that works, it's so beautiful. So I think that both people who uh, push you to think outside of the box and people also who have very clear visions are, are important. I mean, I would say it's general, this with the general directors who inspire me or directors who, regardless of the project, are looking for the art. Yeah. And I feel like that's a big mantra for me lately is that I get to do that. I mean, I'm really lucky. I'm a really lucky sound designer. I mean, I think we all are, are, are but uh, I'm a really lucky sound designer who gets to um, do exciting artistic projects. But I also get to do projects that, on the surface, won't be exciting or artistic. And when it when a when a director comes to me, and, and when I, what I have to bring for myself, but when the director brings this sort of sense of, okay, this may seem like a quotidian piece of theater, but let's find the, the place that feeds our art in this, and let's make this tell some sort of story, or tell some sort of song, sing some sort of a song to the audience that they don't expect. And, and I feel like that that's, that's sort of where, he's, I mean, the greatest <laughs> inspirations do come from. It's just a, I don't want to say uncompromising, because compromise is part of the relentlessness of our history. So you guys are on the edge, and you want directors who are on the edge with you, it sounds like. Yeah. Directors who aren't afraid to take risks. Yeah. Because it's so just, inspiring. I mean, it's just theater, right? Like, <laughs> I love it's what play. it is, but it's, it's a play, and if we take a risk and we mess it up, no one's dying on the offer. <laughs> you know? Like, you might even have a, a, a crappy preview. I mean, God forbid you have a rocky preview. Okay. But, you know, it, it is. It really is. It's that... It's that... A lot of what inspired me also was my... I, I spent five years at the Eugene O'Neill, at the Clarence Conference, doing new plays. And we were... I was working... When, it was when Jim Houghton took over. And, and we were doing, like, you know, 12 to 14 plays in a month. And it was just about, just do it. Don't think about it, don't question it, just throw it up there and see what it is so that we can learn about the play. And, and, and I feel like that, in general, and they have a mantra on the wall there that says, risk, fail, risk again. And I feel like that's the... Like, it, 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 and it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's on the cutting edge or if it's, or if it's Chicago, a revival of Chicago. I just see the CD sitting right there. I, I don't... I mean... Heck, I don't. I'm I'm happy to do, you know, any of any of them as long as we do it with a with an exciting yeah, take, absolutely. exciting with no fear. It sounds like you're yeah. or, or trying to overcome. Yeah, yeah. Or even if you're afraid, just look at that fear and go, aha. Yeah. So we'll open it up. Well, I have a, a technical question about um, liking because. Often, um, you know, I find it very disoriented when there's a spatial difference of where an actor is or different actors are, and then, but sound-wise, it's exactly the same. And so, I'm, I'm wondering what you guys think, and um, sort of what technically you do or can do or can be done, so that everyone is happy and there seems 
some more cohesion between what we created here and the environment. There are psychoacoustic tricks that can be done and, and are done, usually if you have more money, of course. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a, I don't want to bore you all, but there is a, uh, uh, in the 20s, a guy named Haast, in the 1920s, did this, some really serious research. And, and basically what, what it says is that the first place that you hear the sound from, even if it's quieter, is the place your brain thinks the sound is coming from. Mm -hmm. So uh, there have been lots of different ways of implementing this. And now with the technology, you can literally, uh, uh, I don't know if you've done this, but I've certainly designed the, State divided the stage up into zones and literally time-aligned entire sound systems to 12 different places on the stage. So when an actor is standing in that place, it sounds like their voice is coming from that place. Yeah, there's also a new system that sort of does that stage automatically. Right. I haven't used it yet. Yeah, I've used a bunch of them, actually. Yeah. And they, some of them work better than others, and some of them... And they're all cost... It's all a question of, of, of money, unfortunately. But, but I think the bigger question becomes if... Um, I mean, on the simplest level, if your sound system is louder than your actors, and it's not time-aligned right, you can't survive. And you can't keep the voice in the actor. It, unless you, unless you time-align your sound system. The, and and, and I'm a, I mean, I'll take this to a different place, which is about mics and theater. I think, I mean, I have no objections to microphones in theater, but I do think that our actors are under-trained. Mm -hmm. And I think our vocal coaches are not out there or are not hired often enough. And I think that there's a lot of you know, I can I can work miracles if you can give me twelve rows, but if you can give me two rows, you're gonna sound like you're on a microphone. I mean, if an actor can't get me, I mean, the truth of the matter is, I could probably make it if you can give me six rows. You know, but I like to ask for at least a dozen. It, it, and I think that actors, and, and there are certainly, I mean, and there are moments that are directed where you you know a director might yeah. say, well, I want them to have them. Okay, I can find ways to do that, but 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 the uh, the basic level has to be. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. remember I was doing it. I was doing way, way back when I was still mixing. I was doing a view from the bridge. It's got to be '97 when we first came to the city. I was doing a um, view from the bridge with the, the roundabouts, old space here. With Anthony Rapali and Allison Janney. And Anthony blew out, literally blew out his voice. He had nothing. He came in one day and he said, "Well, just put a mic on me." Except he said, "Just put a mic on me." And I said, "Anthony, <laughs> I can't hear you, and I'm standing two feet from you." I can't, the mic, I, and I literally, I took a mic and I put it up in front of his mouth and I didn't speak it to him, he did, and, you know, no one heard anything, and I said, I can't, there's nothing, Wait, what you need to do is go home, go on vocal rest for four days and take some steroids, and you can come back, but, I mean, it, it, literally, there's only so, you know, so, so if there is a lot, there is a, if you're getting enough from the actors, there are a lot of things that you can do technologically yeah. to provide precedence. Unfortunately, as the sound levels increase, it becomes much harder to do that. You know, um, simply because less and less of the sound, you're, you know, smaller percentage of the sound you're hearing is actually coming from the real person. So, trying to, uh, you know, get that precedence effect set up becomes increasingly more difficult. And there are other things too. You know, I'm mean, again not to bore you, but. We've sort of started experimenting uh, in the past couple of years with with using different types of speaker systems. I think, you know, personally, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with in a theatrical environment with with some of the speaker systems we're using. And uh, um, I've actually pulled from the, believe it or not, the home hi-fi world 
to, you know, because they're basically, in a way, trying to do the same thing. It's like, how do I recreate the sound of an orchestra in my living room? And so we've been, we've been experimenting with some of these, you know, they're panel speakers. They've been around forever, but the whole idea of, uh, of, of not thinking of the speaker as a laser beam, and these speakers actually emit sound equally out of the back as, they, uh, as much as they do the front. Uh, and it, it's really interesting, and again, not to bore you, but, but I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of progress to be made. I think in some ways we still are kind of in rock and roll land in how we treat... Um, reinforcement for musicals. You know, these theaters, all in all, are wonderful acoustic spaces. Um, they were designed, and they did musicals in these theaters for years and years and years without electronic reinforcement. Now we have this new aesthetic. You know, I, I don't know. You probably experience this too. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a first meeting with the director and I'm like. Oh, I want it to sound very natural and organic, and you know, I, I don't want to feel like it's amplified. And you know, and so you go in the theater the first day, uh, or you, you might even get to first preview a certain way, and uh, uh, and you've got a really nice balance going, and it sounds really good. And you're like, wow, that kind of sounds natural. And you know, the first audience hits, and they're not happy with the cast, and the first thing they say is, "How loud can you make it?" Mm-hmm. And I, I experience that all the time. But they they just say, "Turn it up." And it, it initially starts, and they're trying to you know, give the cast that little, or the the orchestra or whatever, that little boost. But unfortunately, once you go there, there's no going back. Well, you know, everyone gets used to it, and that's it. It's really funny. I did a, I did a musical, uh, and uh, I had the, the, the... It seemed like the director and the, the writer were in sync all the way through and we did exactly that it was I want to be very natural I don't want to hear the microphones at all I just want to hear the show everywhere in the room never want to hear the mics and we did I mean I busted my butt because it's a lot harder to do that than to do a big rock and roll system and I busted my butt and we spent lots of money and and it sounded exactly like there was one actress that I wasn't quite happy with yet but of a cast of 16 I was like she's just a little brassy I'm hearing her mic and so I'm taking these notes and, and afterwards, after the first preview, the, the, compo- the, the writer says to me, here's the problem, darling. I'm hearing everything, and I'm hearing everything perfectly, but it sounds like they're coming from over there, and she gestures to the stage. <laughs> and, I said, and, and I said, yes. And she said, I want them to sound like they're right here. Oh. And so I literally said, and she said this to me, and she's sitting here, and I'm sitting here, and the director's over there, and I, I said, I just looked at her, and I looked at him, and I said, you guys have to have a conversation, and whoever wins, I will do. <laughs> but I cannot, and because I realized that I had been in between them, and she really had been advocating for this the whole time, and he had been advocating for, you know, and I just said, call me when you're done. I'm going to find a small room with padded walls. <laughs> but it was, it, uh, yeah. So who won? She did and it was, I mean, and it wasn't a problem. As Brett says, we all have the tools to do it. If I have the tools to make it subtle, I have the tools to make it loud. The, the same tools are going to be in the room. Yeah. It may be a different approach, and I may, it may mean that I'm going to spend the next 48 hours rethinking my entire sound system, and blah, 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 blah. but I, I have the tools in the room to do it. So, it, 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 I mean, there are aesthetics involved. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the flip side of the coin happens, too. You know, there, I mean, some things should be loud. You know, rock and roll, in my humble opinion, should be loud. And 
And, you know, I've gotten caught in that quandary before. Actually, in fact, the first show I ever did at the Vineyard was Eli's coming, the Laura Nero show. And that room is and was a nightmare to begin with. It's tiny. It's like doing, you know, theater in somebody's basement. They'd always had problems. Yeah. Um, They've treated it over the years. It's better. But anyway, you know, and it was a loud show. We had a rock band on stage. And, you know, we, we... and was in the perfect place as far as I was concerned. But, you know, then you start getting the preview audiences and certain people think it's too loud and they're walking out, you know, and it's like, you know, of course that never bodes well. It's like, you know, trying to find that line. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've, been, I've, been to some, I've been to some Broadway shows that I thought should be loud and weren't. And, you know, to me that just serves the effect of, of watering it down more. I, 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 don't, I hear Jesus Christ Superstar is coming back, but... I, I saw Jesus Christ Superstar in London. I want to say it was like 91 or 92. And when that first, uh, you know, after the whole guitar riff at the top of that and the, and the, and the drums, like the cymbal crash thing happened, I literally thought it was going to take my head off. And it was awesome. <laughs> like, it, it was, so, I mean, literally, it was like going back to the whole touching right, people. Yeah, like, I literally, it was like a wall of sound came at me at that moment. I get the goosebumps thinking about that moment. So, you know, there's the flip side of that whole thing, too. Where, you know, like, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, you know, nothing, you know, it's, it can't be loud, it can't be loud. Well, you know, sometimes it can be loud. Um, I, I honestly think that's why um, Brian Ronan was ignored when he did the Green Day musical by the critical, by the awards. Oh, yeah. He made it loud. He made it sound like a Green Day concert. And there were a lot of theater critics who don't want to go they to don't the Green Day concert. They don't want it. You know, they... It's a Green Day concert, man. You gotta, you know, if you betray the the fundamental of the of the musical, then anyhow, yeah. we could go on for a long time. How about listening systems? You know, all the fine tuning of sound design and projecting voices and everything. I don't. I'm I'm not hard of hearing. I've never used them, but I get the feel that feeling that many of these older people that do are getting not great audio. It's, it's rarely the first thing on a designer's mind when they're designing a system, but I do, I mean, I certainly strive, one of the things I do strive to do is make sure that the feed that I'm giving that system is a good one, but it's never going to be, I mean, talk about spatial, you, you can never have a spatial relationship to a, a play when you have a listening system, because the listening system, it's not physically possible, because you don't know where they're sitting, it's not, so you have to give them that, that zero delay feed, and, and it's right in their ears, so... You might get a good mix. You might get a good balance. I mean, a lot of straight play listening systems are very much afterthoughts. So we throw out some foot mics and send yeah. it to the listening system. Or there's like a mic hanging in the, you know, like at the Atco Vineyard at the I love the Off-Broadway theaters. You talk to them about a listening system and they think, well, you know, there's a there's a mic we bought in 1978 and we hang it in the grid and we just turn it off. And, and that's what, I mean, a lot of times you just don't have any research control. But it is, I mean, it's a, it's an important thing to consider. I mean, I, I always, again, when I have the budget, I always make sure that there is a nice, at least a nice feed. And I'll sit and listen to it one night. I'll put it on and I'll listen to it, you know, if I have enough previews. I'll, I'll put it on and let's sit and grow G and listen to it through the listening system, take notes and tweak it. I was thinking about the way that when you look and you hear where the sound's coming from, you see it, and then, like you said, someone said before, that adjusts, your ear adjusts. So for older people who maybe they don't hear or see so well, it's such a limited experience. 
you know, if they're not in the first five rows, they maybe can't see so well. They're hearing through a mediocre audio. It seems like those systems should be improved. You know, you've got the great beats, everybody has all this great sound, but those seem like very many. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. It's a hard market. Of course, you you have to find some some manufacturer who thinks that they can make a profit selling something to the theater, and it's not a it's not a big. But I mean, I think certainly if it would be it wouldn't certainly wouldn't no one no one would deal, yeah. you know, no one would be in any way put all put out. No sound designer I've ever met would be put out if someone came to them and said, "This is great new listening system." And most of the time, to be frank. Uh, the list, all the listening systems in, on Broadway are done by one company, and you simply, they don't want, they just say, give, they give you a plug and say, put sound in here. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have nothing to do with it. it. It literally is like, you send them an isolated single line of sound, and they're not set up to handle anything beyond that anyhow. So. Time. Yeah, um, I just want to get back to the question that you started to get towards, and talking about Brian Ronan shows is really good because it, it gives me a way to talk about it and that's uh, volume versus articulation and reinforcing a musical um, because Brian's work on Book of Mormon crystal clear uh, the question for me is about hearing the lyrics uh, and specifically what what your role or how, how that can be best done because the lyrics in Book of Mormon, and these are all through Brian Ryan shows, crystal clear. Uh, in uh, American Idiot, it was exactly right loud, but some of those great Billy Joe Armstrong lyrics got a little lost, and the balance on the new rent, also a problem. Is that a problem of time, rehearsal, money, um, somebody not, somebody in the so, you know, it's tough to say. There's so many variables. That's why you might go to, you know, one show that designer X did and it sounds fabulous, and then you go to a show down the street and it's like, is this the same guy? You know, a lot of it has to do with who's mixing and, you know, it's, there's, I don't, I don't even know how that really and, and who's And who's yelling at you? Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. uh, I, I'm about to do um, a show with David Ryan and Johnny Pietro, and they know each other pretty well. And they know that they both want opposite things, right? And they've acknowledged this in meetings, but we still know it's going to happen. We know at the outset that David's going to want the music louder and fuller and more rock and roll, and Joe is going to want the words further forward, further forward, further forward. And the question is, what is the... So, so, so in that environment, I become an aesthetic tightrope, right? You know, how much, you know, how much of my... So I, I have to be sure that... I'm giving them something, and here's a little psychology trick that I play all the time, which is I make it number three. One of them wants loud, one of them wants clear, I'm going to make number three. I'm going to make you hear the show in a different way than you've ever thought about hearing that music, and so I'm going to take it out of both paradigms of musical theater and, and rock and roll and try and find a middle ground, and that way they're hearing something that they have to listen to for the first time. And, and then we can go from there. So it's not just this sort of traditional battle of, you know, and, and you have these horrible moments, and every sound designer has had this moment in a musical that they've done at some point. And it's that moment where you've, you know, you've been, you've been feeding the need of the book writer for three and a half minutes, 
and then there's a solo, and so you have to feed the need of the, the composer, and so suddenly the song goes from being this like, you know, vocal forward music in the background thing to this like blasting music solo, and then back, and it's a vocal, you know, and it's like, it's, <coughs> it's an interesting, I think that the way of writing music for theater has changed in the last hundred years, and there was a time when music and orchestrations were written to leave space for the voice, and that is no longer the case. Most composers today uh, grew up in an environment of reinforced music, and therefore they expect reinforced vocal over reinforced music. And and you know it it's a it's a different competitive orchestration. Yeah, exactly. There you know there were strict rules you know before reinforcement. Strict rules. You never have a cello playing while a tenor sings, right? You ne you know these yeah. are rules. But now, of course, there's no rule at all. You know, it's just. Yeah. You know. Well, another thing I find to sort of address the the, the lyrics and understanding <laughs> lyrics is, you know, and this goes back to this whole training thing. I find that there is a there is a trend towards sloppy diction, mm -hmm. and you know, frankly, I, I I spend a lot of my time giving diction notes, and you know, as long as the director's cool with it, and you know, I I, I you know do sometimes approach cast members and say, during this song, and I can't tell you how many times I've been doing a musical and there's this, you know, sonic train wreck at point in song X, and, you know, I'm tearing my hair out, trying to make it work, trying to pull it out, and all of a sudden we say, let's try this cast. Over-articulate this to the point where it feels ridiculous to you. And nine times out of ten... Fixed. It, it, you know, it, it's like you're saying earlier, that microphone is a little ear, and it's going to pick up whatever it hears, whether it's a big voice or a not so big voice or an articulate voice or a, 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 a drum set. You know, you have to think about all those things. And that, you know, that's, I think that you know, sometimes when you get these loud shows and they, you lose some of that articulation, it's because those little omnidirectional microphones they, they're wearing are. are picking up something that is louder than the voice. And guess what gets amplified? I, I actually recorded a show, did a recording for a show at the Vineyard. Uh, it was called Miracle Brothers. And we had this whole huge percussion, all kinds of different, you know, Brazilian percussion on stage. And there were a couple spots in that show where I never really did get it right. When we did the recording, I came back and I was sitting with the Kirsten, the composer, and... I was I, I was I was soloing out some of the some of the vocal mics and realized at that moment I'm like here's why we could never get this to work it's because that microphone was picking up the percussion more than it was the actor even though it was mounted to the actor's head and that's 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 one of those variables that you know there's 20 pieces of percussion of course they're going to be louder they're um, five feet away yeah. and one thing you sometimes have to do as a designer is turn off the actor's mics rather than turn them on if I've got 19 people singing the same part. And eight of those people are standing in front of the band. Yeah. I'm only going to turn on 11 mics. I mean, we, we. One of the reasons that I work a lot with choreographers when I'm with a musical is that I want to know where those people are. I want to know where exactly. A because I may be doing imaging, but B. I got nine dancers standing in the band. There's nothing I can do. Turning their mics on just and their mics, of course, are not tuned to make the band sound good. So the band sounds muddy. Mush. The vocals yeah. sound muddy. Everything sounds, you know, so. Quick, uh, yeah, quick follow-up and then, oh, okay. Uh, Can you do a quick follow-up? Follow the same thing, go ahead. Yeah, it's just very quick. Uh, how do 
it would be helpful for directors to think about, especially musicals, to think about where the band is so that we can <laughs> make... If only they would. If only they would. Everyone wants to put the band on stage these well, days, I mean, so, you know. You know, just put it out there. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the, how does monitoring for the actors feed into that or feedback it? Do you... Do you let I, the, mon- the actors have vocal monitors? Embarrassing to admit, I have crossed the line. I don't. I don't usually do don't. We usually, you know, there's sort of a strict rule that it's sort of a, a lie that sound designers tell people, which is that you can't have vocals in the foldback. Mm-hmm. It's actually not true. You can, but it muddies things up. Um, I have always said you can't, and then uh, again on Phalo, we we entered the Twilight Zone, and so. The sound on stage, the, the vocals on stage are at times loud enough to fill the entire room. And it is problematic. You're braver, braver than I won't do it. I literally will not take the project if they insist on that because it creates, in my opinion, you know, you can make it work and I have made it work, but it's never as good as it can be. And a lot of times when you go see a show and you, it kind of sounds like hollow mm-hmm. and it's kind of, but it's in a shoebox kind of thing. Nine times out of ten, that's what's going on, and it's called regeneration. The sound goes in the microphone, comes out of the the speaker, and it goes, and, well, anyone, that's feedback. You know, the the ultimate incarnation of that is squealing feedback, but it happens in subtler stages along the way to to ear-piercing feedback. But that's just, that's one of my, like, won't do it. Well, and the thing to think about in that environment, of course, is that if it's loud enough for the actor to hear, it's loud enough for the mic to hear. So at, at no point are you going to ever win that game. We've, I do, um, I, I am also, uh, we've tried and I've done this on some shows, if an actor really, 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 really feels that they're not going to make it through the show if they can't hear their own voice, you can give them an in-ear monitor. I, I don't like doing it because it isolates the actor from the play and it isolates the actor from the audience. But, I mean, I'm, and I have, I have one actress right now on a show who literally said, if I can't hear myself, I, and, and this is a training issue, and I'm, but it's not my place, I can't. She's a, you know, she is truly a diva. You know, she is in the truest sense a diva. And, and not in a bad way, necessarily. She is a singer of great self-worth and... <laughs> Um, maybe great worth in general, <laughs> and she, uh, but she, she just can't do it with that. And so we said, okay, here is an in-ear monitor, and let's be honest, it's not hurting my mix. Um, she's incredibly happy; she's ecstatic about it. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I would, that I think, speaks to that sort of same thing you know, about the, the whole notion of like putting an in-ear monitor on a performer and the the negative effect that that has on their performance because they're now in this little shoebox. You know, the other thing that happened, this, this drives me nuts, I don't know what your feelings about this are, this whole trend towards putting the orchestra, the band in the basement somewhere, mm-hmm. in my humble opinion, is an abomination. Like, I'm like you know, and, I, and I've said, like, how do you expect this band to play like a band, like they're part of the show, if you're going to lock them up in a, in a box with no windows and a bunch of video monitors? It's... I just think there's something fundamentally wrong, and that is where you know this whole electronic sound reinforcement thing is hurting hurting things because before it simply wasn't an option, and a lot of sound designers want that because it gives them control, ultimate control of the mix. Well, 
that, that's my little soapbox moment. I don't know how that's you a, feel about I, that. I, I just I, think that I'm is insane. I think, honestly, the reality is if you have a really good music director, and I think that directors of musicals need to keep this in mind, there are not that many good MDs out there. And great music directors make or break your show. Great oh, yeah. music directors watch the diction. Great music directors watch out to make sure that the band and the singers are integrated. Great music directors will say to the actors, relax, if you can't hear yourself, you will just relax. You know what I mean? And it, and it suddenly changes. It's a game changer. It really is. I, I, I have um, one music director that I've worked with who literally says, she, she, you know, all of the bands, you'll always, if you go into a pit, they're all wearing what they call avions, which are a headphone and a personally devised mix. So everyone in the band, everyone in the orchestra has 16 knobs and they can say, oh, I need more violin when I'm playing. And it's literally having, you have 32 or 24 or 18 musicians who are playing 18 separate you know, they're playing together, they're in sync, they've got a conductor, but they don't know what's really happening across the room because they've turned the trumpet up or they've turned the trumpet up. And, and uh, Kim Grigsby is this music director and I, and she, she and I sat down and we said, let's see if we can do this. We did a musical in, in Texas and, and, and we said, why don't we put no mics in the orchestra for starters? Let's put the orchestra in the space, in the pit, in the orchestra pit, and let's balance the orchestra for the room physically. Let's see if they can hear each other. Let's see, you know, we added four mics, maybe, and it was all we needed. I mean, it's, it's again, it's the same question that we were talking about earlier, which is what well, you're talking about with Danny. Question all of your assumptions. And then, you know, but an MD is, a good MD is like gold. Yes? You went into this just a hair when you are talking about um, watching the choreographer's work and seeing where dancers were placed. But what kind of work can you do or do you find productive before you even get to the tech process and the mics and the theater? Like, what can you actually do in the rehearsal room? Oh, everything. I mean, depends. Well, it, again, depends on straight player and musical. If, if it's a musical, I can simply keep, keep track of what's happening and ask lots of questions and have great conversations uh, because I don't have to. I will say, and I've done this, this is another disturbing trend, which is directors insisting on full reinforcement packages in rehearsal rooms, which I'm seeing more and more. I need mics on everyone in rehearsal. Let's learn what to play before you come to rehearsal. But, but in, in a straight play, I mean, I can do immense amounts. I mean, if I'm scoring or affecting or whatever, I love to sit and, and it, you know, again, regional theater is detrimental to this because regional theater doesn't want to bring you in until the day before CAC. And God knows we all schedule ourselves to it within an inch of our lives. So I, it's not like I could be there, even, you know. But when I'm on when I'm on home, when I'm at the home fields, you know, which is, again, as I said, in Philly now, I'll just be in rehearsal. I'm, I'm doing this, you know, the show that I'm doing with Andy Kaplan right now in Philly. I'm going to be in rehearsal every day that I'm free from now until tech. By the time we get to tech, the song's not going to be done. You know, it's just about grace notes after that. Because we've built it along, and the technology allows me. And I'll, you know, I'm very good at, like, writing along or playing along or, you know, and, and, and I'll, I sort of have a three-tier system. I make something and listen to it on my headphones, you know, with one ear to the actors. Then I play it just for me and my director, or me and my director and my writer, and then I'll play it for me, my director, and the actor. You know, and there's a series of cuts, of course, in between one, two, and three. And then we see, and we see how the actors, but certainly in rehearsal, I mean, I love to see how an actor vibes to something, and then I can go, ah, aha, I'm pushing the wrong thing. They're already doing that, let me do this. Or this is interfering with them doing this. Or, ooh, this is boosting it, let me do this. And, you know, so you can do a lot, and, and definitely uh, in dance as well, of course. So much happens in the rehearsal world, because they're moving to music. One more, and then we do need to wrap it up. So, can you talk a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got into sound design? 
I, I, I started playing, I was going to be a rock star. And I started playing electric guitar. It had to be an electric guitar. I, I was about five years old. And, you know, I was kind of a, like I never played with toys. It was one of those, like, you know, I got a record player for my second birthday that was, or Christmas. Um, um, I actually grew up in Oklahoma and had the, uh, had the blessing to grow up in the, the Union Roadhouse there in Tulsa. So I was working in the smaller theaters doing... Uh, plays for the local theater company, and then you know when that was over, I wasn't doing anything. I'd go theater rat in the in the in the uh, the music hall upstairs and hang out with the stagehands. And uh, it, I, I gotta be honest, it was Les Miserables that really was the show. I was probably fourteen the first time it came to Tulsa, and uh, the house carpenter came lumbering. I think I was doing Christmas Carol or something one of the smaller theaters. He said, "If you don't go see Les Mis, you should be shot." So I went, and I remember um, seeing that show and just the scale and the barricades coming on, and, and that was really the moment for me. I was like, this is what I want to do. And, uh, of course, then I, I hung out for Loadout and was very disappointed when that huge back wall just piled up on the floor. But, um, <laughs> that was, you know, that, that was, in, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty much a straight path to here. Uh, I, I came up... Um also playing music, but uh, a, a mix of jazz and heavy metal. Mm. Um, and I, I studied design in general. I have only a, a, an undergraduate degree in design. I don't have a, a graduate degree. But, um, I studied design and production at NYU in their undergrad program. And I really spent a lot of time... I got there thinking that I was going to study sound design, and then they canceled the sound design program. Mm. When was that? That was 90. 91? Yeah. I don't know. I have to count on my fingers. 94. It was 94. And um, John Gramada was supposed to be teaching sound design there. And then the people at Playwrights Horizons who were actually running the design part of the program said, oh, we have too little enrollment in sound design, so we're canceling the class. And uh, so I spent the, the next three years just studying design in general and ideas about design. But I would say really, truly, I didn't become the designer I am until that sort of crazy boot camp time with the Eugene O'Neill, mm-hmm. um, where I, I learned, there I learned a playwright-centric universe. And and it's, it really fueled me. Um, I, I question it still to this day, but I do believe in large part, even if you're doing derived, devised work when you're all the writers, I do believe that the, it begins with, with, uh, with this storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually don't think there are very few of us of maybe some of the younger ones that are actually trained in sound. Yeah. I went to North Carolina School of the Arts. They actually didn't have a sound program until my senior year, so I only really had a professor one year. What was good for me, I actually followed the lighting design track, mm-hmm. and uh, but what was good for me at that school was you know they do umpteen productions a year. And they just turned me loose. And I was literally designing, you know, three or four shows a term. I'd shut the door on one and and, and immediately jump into another. And I was working in dance and, and as, as well as theater and even dabbled a little bit in opera. Um, so that was great for me. But I think there are very few of us that actually went to school for this. Yeah, I mean, more and more now. More, yeah. I mean, I, I've yeah. been to them now. I mean, I was certainly, you know, there's all of it. You know, it actually fits. And, you know, like, there are these this sort of, Especially Yale was one of the earlier shows, you know, colleges turning out 
I didn't say churning, but I'm turning out <laughs> uh, uh, sound designers. So I, Ithaca, too. Yeah, Ithaca yeah. was one of the first, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. And and it's. I mean, I, I think, in a way, you talk to. So you, you I, I don't know if you all have heard. You know, this is the big theory you now. This ten thousand hour theory. Yeah. And if you do anything for ten thousand hours, you can become really good at it. And I think that that's really sort of crucial to to, to me becoming a sound designer. To a lot of us, going from being sound designers being good at being sound designers and it's just that that thing of like okay I have I probably have if I get a CV six seven hundred shows on there you know when did I become a really good sound designer maybe after four or five hundred of them I think that that's yeah there is something I was never bad at it I'm not sure I cranked <laughs> at it sometimes but but I think that it is it is very much a a field that you've got to do, learn by doing and doing. Yeah. It's, it's, it truly is never easy. I mean, you know, especially doing musicals, you, the minute you think you've done it all and you've had everything go wrong or, you know, you'll go and go, oh, this show's going to be a piece of cake. You know, it's three, you know, there's three pieces in the band and four actors, and you realize when you get in the theater that you have to figure it out again. And it really, I, I really believe that. It's, it's funny, John Rando said to me, why, because we're doing this toxic adventure, he said, why is it that sound, no matter how well we prepare, why is it sound always the last thing ready? It's never easy. And I said it's because, because we, I can't, you know, I, it's not like scenery. I can't draw a model and put it up. I mean, I can do an acoustic model with space. I do it all the time now. But it's not, you know, I can't make the things and have you look at them and, and say, oh, that green is wrong. You know, I can't do it until I'm in the theater with the actors and the darn orchestra because for some reason someone's convinced the people who produce theater that we don't need the orchestra until two days before our preview. Like, this is like that great myth of, again, this is part of my failure was able to sound great. I had the band for ten weeks before, you know, for six wow. weeks before an audience had a band. Wow. You know, it's a totally different, it's a game changer. You bring me, you have a, you know, some... Some someone banging away on a on a piano and trying to play as if they're playing a you know it's just not you know even whether it's you know whether it's a rock score or, or a classical score it's, it doesn't matter you know one person on the piano does not a, a tech yeah. rehearsal make well for me you know it, Diane Paulus summed it up I was doing a show at ART in Boston with Diane uh, oh I guess it was two years ago about this time of year and ART didn't really do musicals. Before you know, they did Shaw plays before Diane came on, and here comes Diane. They're doing all this kind of crazy stuff, and we were—I can't remember if we were in previews or you know, in like the dress, you know, like dresses before previews. But you know, it was a train wreck, and this was this was a problem. This was a problem. One of the people from ART, you know, said something in a, in a notes meeting after in, in a production meeting after, and Diane literally said, "She's like, oh, don't worry about it. Sound is a process." And you know, I, I'd never really thought of it that way, but that she really summed it up. She, you know, she wasn't even thinking about it yet because we weren't far enough along in that process um, to even even worry about it at that point. And you know, we do ninety percent of our work doing, during previews, hands down. And you know, I'm very reluctant to leave, you know a lot of these lighting designers. They'll come in, wave their wave their wand, and fly out. We can't do that, and you can't leave an associate to handle it. You have to be there for previews, all of them. And, you know, and, and you just you gotta be there for that. Speaking whole. of which, that's why Jill had to leave early. I was hoping she could sneak out, and the and the reporter wouldn't know. But now she can't answer her 
answer your question about how she got started. So, um, yeah, we've been exposed. That's fine. Um, I just want to thank you guys so much. This was really yeah. fascinating, and thanks for all the really insightful questions. And Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.